Welcome to SNC Critical Insights. I'm Annie Ostrager, and I'm joined today by my partners, Julie Jordan and Tracy Rochelle High, and together we head up the Labor and Employment Group at Sullivan and Cromwell. Today, we're going to give an overview of the Supreme Court's decision in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard and UNC, which has been widely discussed and has left a number of unanswered questions that we expect will be litigated over the coming years. Today, we will focus on a few currently pending employment and contracting cases that may be affected by the court's decision. Then we'll cover some related shareholder proposals and we'll conclude with a brief discussion of potential implications for employers. Julie, can you kick us off with some background on the court's landscape-changing affirmative action decision? Certainly. So the court's June 29th decision involved two consolidated lawsuits, both of which were brought by the Students for Fair Admissions. One was against Harvard College and the other against the University of North Carolina. So in this decision, the Supreme Court held that the Harvard and UNC admissions programs, both of which used race as an explicit factor in admissions decisions, violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. In a footnote, the court also explained that the use of race in admissions decisions violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in the education context. In reaching this decision, the court complained it had no way to measure the school's purported interests in support of affirmative action. The interests that had been put forward by the schools included, among other things, training future leaders in the public and private sectors, preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society, better educating its students through diversity, and producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. The court said that these interests were unlike other race-based interests the court had previously found to be compelling, such as preventing racial violence in prisons, making specific employees who were discriminated against whole again, and the remediation of past discrimination in schools. The court also stated that the categories that these schools used to measure diversity were both overbroad and underinclusive. The court observed that the admissions processes appeared to be impermissibly operate as a negative against students of certain races. And because there are a fixed amount of seats for admitted students, the court took the view that the admissions process resulted in significant decreases in the percentage of Asian and white students who would otherwise be admitted. The court also noted that neither of the school's admission processes had any endpoint as required by existing precedent. Finally, the court said that the admission processes appeared to improperly stereotype racial minorities because in the court's view, the point of respondents' admissions programs is that there is an inherent benefit in race for race's sake. We are just beginning to see cases attempting to extend the SFFA decision to other cases, including in the education context. By way of example, in Coalition for TJ versus Fairfax County School Board, a group of parents and students are seeking to overturn a Fourth Circuit decision in favor of the school regarding its admissions policy. Under that policy, 
students are given bonus points if they are eligible for free or reduced price lunch or to students who are from underrepresented middle schools. By way of reference, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is one of the top ranked public high schools in the country. The plaintiff's group is arguing that the high school's admission policies in practice reduce the number of Asian students admitted. There remains to be seen whether the Supreme Court will hear this case. A cert petition was recently filed. Thanks, Julie. So on its face, the court's affirmative action decision doesn't directly apply to private employers. Employers are, however, subject to a variety of non-discrimination laws, which we expect will be significantly influenced by the court's reasoning in the affirmative action decision. In the words of the court, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Right. Two important federal laws governing employers are Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in the employment context, as well as Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which prohibits racial discrimination in contracting. Under current law, based on two Supreme Court cases from 1979 and 1987, it is a defense to a racial discrimination claim in the employment context that the employer was acting pursuant to an affirmative action plan. Although these cases are still good law, it remains to be seen whether they can survive a post-SFFA challenge. In a concurring opinion in SFFA, Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, has already taken the position that Title VII should be interpreted the same way as Title VI to prohibit any form of discrimination. Yes, and as we previewed, we're watching closely a few pending cases in the employment and contracting contexts, which could be affected by the decision. Tracy, can you describe one of those contracting cases? Yes, Annie. The first case we're watching is American Alliance for Equal Rights versus Fearless Fund Management, LLC, which is pending in the Northern District of Georgia. On August 2nd, 2023, just a few weeks after the SFFA decision was announced, Ed Blum, who is the same lawyer behind the SFFA litigation, filed a complaint in the Northern District of Georgia on behalf of the newly formed organization called the American Alliance for Equal Rights. The organization is suing the Fearless Fund, who describes its mission as being to, quote, bridge the gap in venture capital funding for women of color founders, building scalable growth, aggressive companies. According to the complaint, the Fearless Fund provides periodic $20,000 grants to eligible Black women owners of small businesses. This conduct, according to Blum, violates Section 1981 because Fearless Fund's conduct allegedly constitutes prohibited racial discrimination in contracting. Preliminary injunction briefing is currently ongoing. Yes, that's an interesting one, Tracy. And the Fearless Fund has said of the litigation that its commitment to principles of anti-discrimination could not be stronger and that it stands firm in its purpose to provide a gateway to economic freedom. So it sounds like for now, at least, that organization is planning to 
fight the litigation. Are there other contracting cases working their way through the courts that are of note? Yes, we're also watching a case called Bolduc versus Amazon, which is pending in the Eastern District of Texas. This is a class action complaint that was filed in July, 2022, alleging that Amazon provides diversity grants of $10,000 to Black, Latinx, and Native American entrepreneurs to build their own delivery business in the US. The complaint also alleges that Amazon operates a Black Business Accelerator program, which is dedicated to helping build sustainable diversity and provide growth opportunities for Black-owned businesses. Under this program, Black-owned businesses can receive a $500 credit to defray startup costs, as well as advertising credit and other benefits. This conduct is alleged to violate Section 1981 because Amazon is allegedly discriminating on the basis of race in making contracts. Motion to dismiss briefing was completed in May, 2023. So another case we're keeping tabs on is a case out of the Eastern District of Tennessee, which addresses federal government contracting and it's referred to as Ultima Services versus the United States Department of Agriculture. Ultima Services Corporation is a contractor that principally provided services to the USDA. In 2018, the USDA allegedly began to stop exercising its options to extend its services contracts with Ultima and instead set those contracts aside for what is known as Section 8A contractors. Section 8A, the Small Business Act itself, authorizes the Small Business Administration, or SBA, to enter into agreements for goods and services and to subcontract the performance of those agreements to quote unquote, socially and economically disadvantaged small business concerns. In determining which companies are qualified for this program, the SBA presumed that individual members of certain racial and ethnic groups are quote unquote, socially disadvantaged. These included black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Americans, and subcontinent Asian Americans. Ultima, the plaintiff argued, among other things, that this program impermissibly discriminates on the basis of race in violation of the Fifth Amendment. On July 19, 2023, the court partially granted summary judgment in favor of Ultima, finding that the government's consideration of race in contracting does not further compelling governmental interest and is not narrowly tailored to achieve such an interest. The court enjoined the government from using the rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage in administrating this SBA program. A hearing on any additional remedies is scheduled for August 31st, 2023. In reaching its holding, the court noted in a footnote that the facts in SFAA concern college admissions programs, but its reasoning is not limited to just those programs. Right, so these cases demonstrate that the SFFA decision has already been extended beyond the admissions context, and we're seeing the stage set in the employment context for the same extension of the reasoning of the Harvard decision. 
That's right, Annie. In Ultima, the court expressly extended SFFA's reasoning to the government contracting context. And in the Fifth Circuit, the court, sitting on banc, just reversed longstanding precedent limiting Title VII to, quote, ultimate employment decisions. The court described its decision as eliminating an interpretive incongruity with the statute's text and, in a concurring opinion, Judge Ho explicitly invoked the Supreme Court's Harvard decision and said that the decision will, quote, help restore federal civil rights protections for anyone harmed by divisive workplace policies that allocate professional opportunities to employees based on their sex or skin color under the guise of furthering diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, and Ed Blum has said in a New York Times interview that it's actionable if an employer says, we're putting up a help wanted sign on the office door and here's the kind of employee we're looking to hire. We're looking to hire those of this race, but not that race. So all of these preferences, whether it's in the employment arena, contracting arena, internships, all of that, he said, he thinks will be energized by the Supreme Court opinion. And we know that you know he has brought a lot of litigation in this space. Yes, so we're seeing some of that type of litigation percolate at the district court level already. One litigation in particular that was being very closely watched is a derivative litigation that was brought against Starbucks in the Eastern District of Washington called National Center for Public Policy Research v. Howard Schultz. There, the complaint alleged that Starbucks implemented seven racially discriminatory employment and contracting policies in 2020. Those policies included, among other things, the adoption of an express goal to have underrepresented minorities constitute at least 30% at all corporate levels and at least 40% at all retail and manufacturing roles by a specified year, 2025. The policies also included the adoption of a commitment to allocating 15% of Starbucks advertising budget with minority-owned and targeted media companies, and an announcement that Starbucks would increase its spend with diverse suppliers from 800 million to 1.5 billion by 2030. The plaintiff alleged these policies violate Title VII, Section 1981, various state laws, and constituted a breach of fiduciary duty with respect to individual Starbucks directors and officers. Just recently, on August 14, the court granted motions to dismiss the case by Starbucks and the individual defendants. In the motions to dismiss, the defendants raised, among other things, the plaintiff's lack of standing to bring the case and that the plaintiff was not an appropriate plaintiff to bring a derivative suit given it only owned 56 shares of Starbucks stock. At oral arguments on the motion to dismiss, the court stated that it would issue a written decision in the future. Given that, it seems unlikely that the Starbucks court will address the substantive claims brought by the plaintiffs in that case, but the case is nevertheless important for its rejection of shareholder derivative litigation brought by activist groups on this issue. I think that's right, Annie. 
I think the court's decision, the recent decision, SFFA, however, may change the trajectory of other currently pending cases. And by way of example, there's one pending in the Northern District of Georgia against AT&T. That case was filed in November 2021 and was brought by a 58-year-old white male who was an assistant VP at and when the company terminated him in connection with a reduction in force. He alleges that his position was eliminated along with at least a dozen others in his department, all of whom were white and over the age of 50, and nearly all of whom were men. Notably, the plaintiff alleges that prior to his termination, the company undertook an increasingly aggressive diversity and inclusion initiative. He alleges that one of the diversity and inclusion goals was to intentionally alter the racial, ethnic, and gender composition at AT&T's workforce, especially at the leadership levels occupied by the plaintiff to make them less white and less male on percentage bases. Plaintiff alleges that as part of that effort, AT&T compiled and distributed to its business department leaders detailed information on the racial, ethnic, and gender demographics of its workforce, including breakdowns of these demographics at different levels of the corporate and departmental hierarchies. Plaintiff alleges that he personally had excellent performance reviews, but was told by a supervisor that he was not promotable because he was, quote unquote, a 50-year-old white guy. Plaintiff asserts that his termination violated Section 1981, Title VII, and the ADEA. On June 6, 2022, the court denied AT&T's motion to dismiss, which includes substantive arguments that the plaintiff's claims were insufficient. In rejecting that theory, the court explained, importantly, plaintiff didn't just point to the diversity initiatives alone to state his claims. He also presented details about how it worked in practice, up to including its alleged application in his case. It started with senior leadership circulating detailed company demographic information to decision makers, explicitly broken down in terms of race and sex, to both inform and, according to plaintiff, influence employment decisions. Discovery in this particular case is scheduled to close in late August 2023. Thanks, Julie. And we saw just yesterday a similar case filed in the Southern District. So these cases are certainly proliferating. And now turning to shareholder proposals, we are also seeing efforts by some shareholder groups to demand that companies conduct cost-benefit analyses relating to their corporate DEI efforts. For example, at Disney, Shareholders requested that the company report to shareholders on the effectiveness of its DEI efforts and said that the report should provide transparency on outcomes using quantitative metrics for hiring, retention, and promotion of employees, including data by gender, race, and ethnicity. At MasterCard, shareholders requested that the company issue a public report before the end of this year detailing a cost-benefit analysis of the company's global diversity and inclusion efforts. And as another example, at T-Mobile, shareholders requested that the company report to shareholders on the effectiveness of its DE&I efforts 
and said that its report should provide transparency on outcomes and using quantitative metrics for hiring, retention, and promotion of employees, including by gender, race, and ethnicity. And you know, we will also see challenges to those type of efforts, countervailing shareholder proposals and challenges in this space too. So given all of this, let's turn now to a discussion of potential implications for employers of the SFFA decision and considerations in evaluating DEI programs. Given the likelihood of future litigation, we recommend that employers review their current and future diversity initiatives in light of the court's decision. Among other things, employers may want to review hiring and promotion processes and procedures, including any documentation of such, to examine whether any decisions are expressly based on race, gender, or another protected class. Employers should also be careful about using factors that can be interpreted as a proxy for race. Second, employers should consider examining their programs that announce targets for achieving certain diversity metrics. And finally, they should review contracting practices to examine whether there are any racial preferences and or quotas in selecting suppliers and contractors. They should also consider whether the company has any policies pressuring suppliers and contractors to meet certain diversity thresholds. Thank you, Tracy, and thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Mm -hmm.